Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author. William D. Cohan is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, and through his work there and other writings, Bill has proven himself to be one of the most meticulous and intrepid journalists working today. He is truly a great reporter covering the important intersection between Wall Street and Washington. He's the author of six books, among them The Last Tycoons, A Secret History of Lazard, Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, The Price of Silence, The Duke Lacrosse Scandal, Why Wall Street Matters, and Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short. Bill Cohen, welcome back to Words Matter. Thank you, Adam. It's great to be back with you again. Well, since we're at that point in the year where we all reflect on what's happened and start thinking about the future, I wanted to have you on today because in a historic year in both terms of economics and politics, there's nobody who I know and respect who has a better sense of really what's happening in that critical intersection, as I mentioned in the intro, between Washington and Wall Street. And so before we begin our 2020, what the fuck was that uh, discussion, I wanted to talk for a minute about you. You've been on our show a couple of times, and we've talked a lot about your, for example, when we talked about your book, Four Friends, we talked about your boarding school experience and your and those relationships. But I wanted to talk a little bit about how you got to where you got. I met you a decade ago working in finance in the public affairs space, and you covered both Goldman Sachs and the private equity firm that I worked for. And all I knew at the time was that unlike many journalists who cover companies like Goldman and large private equity firms, you would pre previously had a substantive career as an M&A banker. Uh, so, you know, for somebody in my position, throwing around a few EBITDAs or reciting the usual uh, platitudes about aligned incentives with investors wasn't going to cut it. So just tell us a little bit and our listeners a little bit about your career path and why you eventually settled on journalism, having gotten both a master's in journalism from Columbia and an MBA. Well, Adam, you're very kind. Flattery will get you everywhere, and uh, I'm blushing now. But well, I started as a journalist. I, you know, was a history major in college. I'd written my thesis in college on the French existential philosophers and how they changed the world. So, of course, I wanted to change the world for the better. I was thinking and thought for sure if I were a journalist, like the French existential philosophers became after World War II, that I could change the world like they changed the world, because, of course, they became the basis of the French resistance during World War II. So I just got this journalism bug, and the only job I could really get, I mean, I thought for sure I was going to go to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and I mean, that was just a given, but it didn't happen. And my first job was at a paper called the Winchester Star, which was in Winchester, Massachusetts. And I was there for a month and I got paid $10 a week before taxes. Then one of the other papers that I had applied to, the Bennington Banner in Bennington, Vermont, called me up and said, would I come and interview for a job 
on the Bennington Banner, which was a daily paper owned by the Miller family at that time. They also owned the Berkshire Eagle. And I thought, okay, well, that certainly sounds much better. As much as I love the Winchester Star and the managing editor who was running it at the time, it was a fascinating experience, although brief. And I went to the Bennington Banner. I interviewed. They had an opening on the daily paper. And they had also just bought some weeklies uh, over across the border in New York State in Washington County, which is far north in New York State on the Vermont border. And they had just bought those weekly newspapers. And of course, that's the job they offered me to be the editor of the paper in Salem, New York, which uh, is basically across from Rupert, Vermont. And this was during the 1981-82 and Reagan recession. And the, the place was really decimated and quite depressed. And so my first thing that I thought of before I took this job, my parents, of course, thought I was nuts. And I was getting paid $175 a week. And first thing I did before I took it was to call the outgoing editor and, you know, ask her what it was like. And, you know, could I live in this part of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, they had forgot to tell her that she was fired. And so I was the one telling her that she got fired. So that's how I began my journalism career. And I did that for a year. Uh, and then I applied to Columbia Journalism School in upstate New York that year. I remember one week, it was like 30 below zero every day. And I lived in a little A-frame out in the woods. And all the money I earned went up in literally in smoke trying to keep that place warm. It was ridiculous experience, but I enjoyed it. I learned a lot about New York State. Of course, now I live 150 miles south of there when I'm not in New York City. And so I went to Columbia Journalism School and then again thought after that I would have a job at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And once again, that didn't happen. And I went to the Raleigh Times in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I was hired as a education reporter covering public schools in Wake County, North Carolina. I'd never been to a public school in my life, Adam, so this was quite an interesting experience. And I did that for two years. I wrote investigative stories that got the school superintendent fired, won a bunch of investigative reporting awards. The journalism hook was even deeper down my gullet. My father at this point thinks I'm truly insane. I was getting paid at that point like $13,000 a year. He kept wanting me to go to business school, and I thought he was crazy. But finally, I applied thinking if I went to business school, I could get a job at the Wall Street Journal, which is really what I wanted to do. So I applied to Columbia, went to Columbia, and get out in uh, May of 87. Tried desperately to get a job at the Wall Street Journal. They would not hire me under any circumstances at all. And so I said to the editor whose office I'd somehow managed to make my way into when they had moved to the World Financial Center, but when I got there, he said, what are you doing in my office? Why are you here? And I said, well, I thought I was having a job interview. He said, no, we have no jobs open. And if we did, we you would be like the last person we'd hire. So I said, well, I'm either going to get a job at the Wall Street Journal or go to Wall Street. And he said, goodbye. And at that point, all you had to do, Adam, to get a job on Wall Street was to breathe. It was May of Correct. 1987. 
it was a lot easier to get a job on Wall Street than it was to get a job at the Journal. So that's what I did. I did that for 17 years. And then it was time to go back to journalism. And you learned how the system works. As I said, I can tell you from experience, there are few reporters who understand the nuts and bolts of what you cover better than you do. And again, while that experience, I'm sure there were ups and downs of it, it was uh, it was well worthwhile because it really does inform. And I wanted to, you to go through that. I really appreciate it because I want our listeners to get a sense of where you come from. I often describe you as that rare character who is of the patriarchy, yet has made it your mission to at the very least expose the flaws in it. And if not, as you said in your discussion of your career path, change the world and hold it accountable for its excesses and abuses. So I really appreciate that. And I just wanted that to color our discussion as now we talk about the wonderful uh, and historic year of 2020. 2020 is going to end very, very differently than it began and very differently than I think anybody imagined. So I want to go all the way back to late January, early February. And you wrote one of the first pieces that I read. You were the one who put coronavirus on my radar. And this was this was published on February 4th. And knowing you, you had this in your head for weeks beforehand before you actually did all your reporting and got it done. But Apple, Apple has temporarily closed all of its stores in China and Starbucks has closed more than half. Goldman Sachs has told its employees in China to work from home for the time being. Meanwhile, the death toll from the virus in China is now around 360, more than the 349 people in China who died from the SARS outbreak a decade ago. More than 17,000 Chinese have been infected by the virus. Closer to home in the United States, there were 11 confirmed cases as of Monday, but the financial markets are increasingly skittish. Now, one of the things that struck me going back and preparing for this discussion was how early you and the people that you talked to on Wall Street understood what might happen. Why did you see it and why did they see it when clearly the policymakers and the, even the public health officials in Washington didn't? Well, we live in a global economy. And despite what Trump was trying to do, to isolate us from the rest of the world. And despite what he was trying to do with his trade policies, which frankly, I don't think anybody really understands what he was trying to do. I don't think he understands what he was trying to do. I don't think the people who negotiated those trade deals, such as they were and are, know what he was trying to do. But, you know, we live in a global economy we have for decades, and China was becoming more and more important economically and as a trading partner, and frankly, as the largest you know, holder of our treasury securities, our largest creditor. And so what was clearly happening early, and you remember from Davos, there was discussion about this at Davos. Right. Of course, Davos is really Wall Street celebrity death match or whatever, you know, with the guys <laughs> raiding one after another onto CNBC with their their Canadian goose parkas or not to show how muy macho they are. And so there was discussion there, and it just seemed inevitable to me, especially as the markets in February were reaching their 
peak before now, of course, and high yield bonds were in the you know five percent range, which I thought was absurd and had been writing about that for a long time, as well as the debt corporate debt had been expanding. Everything just seemed like everything was priced for perfection, uh, Adam, in the markets. And yet this mysterious illness was making its way across the globe. And people I was talking to were beginning to take it very seriously. And when people on Wall Street begin to take things seriously, they actually start putting their money where their mouth is or where their brain is and starting to make bets about what might happen. And so the more I listened to those people, the more I thought this could be something that we need to really take note of seriously from a health perspective and seriously from a markets and economy perspective. That piece was called All Hell is About to Break Loose. And a month and a half later, it had broken loose. I mean, it come to pass. And again, another piece you wrote that came out on the 23rd of March, you said, like nearly every business everywhere, with the notable exceptions of companies such as Zoom, its stock is in the 52-week high range, and Clorox, Wall Street is reeling from the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. And you quoted one of your sources saying, we don't know what the impact will be. There are state issues, credit issues, liquidity issues. We've never seen anything like this before. We've never been through this, even in 2008. And I have to say, Bill, I remember and I was reading that. And that time in mid to late March was very scary. And one of our mutual acquaintances, a former boss of mine at Goldman, asked me what I thought and not being a finance guy by background, I said, look, I, I don't know. But I told him that there was a quote from John Maynard Keynes. And again, like you, history major, and then I was a government guy. But this quote from Keynes that he gave uh, in 1930 to the Saturday Evening Post kept going through my head. It was during the Great Depression. And Keynes was asked if something like this or that had ever happened before. And his response, again, just has stuck with me. He said, yes, it was called the Dark Ages, and it lasted for 400 years. And one point you pointed out, you're reporting that 17 million people were thrown out of work in a period of three short weeks. Just talk a little bit about how on the edge things were during that time back in mid, late March, and how they were worse than 2008. And were people like me who are comparing it to previous recessions, the Great Depression, were we overly dramatic or were, were we sensing what was really going on? Having written two books about the financial crisis, House of Cards about the collapse of Bear Stearns and Money and Power, which was a history of Goldman Sachs, but the last third of it was about how Goldman got through the financial crisis, having lived through that. And that was incredibly scary because the financial system was in the process of melting down. Literally, there was no bottom all these Wall Street firms that, quote-unquote, I had revered or people revere or, or admire or love to hate or whatever it is, were literally disappearing from the face of the earth in a matter of days, which, of course, had happened many times in our history. I mean, uh, Wall Street has always been a dangerous place. Those, I think, are the opening lines of the Goldman book. This was a reminder of that. So that was incredibly scary because the financial system melts down, then capital just is not 
available to anybody. And if capital is not available to anybody in a world that is a capitalist world, then basically you've thrown sand into the gears of capitalism and it's all just going to shut down, which is, of course, why the Fed immediately, Bernanke stepped in and started quantitative easing one, two, three, and four, and expanded the Fed's balance sheet from about $900 billion to about $4 trillion in the space of seven or eight years through the buying of securities in the market that basically nobody else wanted, a lot of which were mortgage-backed securities, and effectively raising the price of those securities and lowering their yield to near zero. So that was that whole uh, experience, that narrative arc of the financial crisis. So then we zoom forward to March of this year, when the pandemic is breaking out, when the NBA is being canceled for the season, when Tom Hanks shows up in Sydney saying he's got COVID. When Italy is shut down. People just begin to flee big cities, especially New York, where we both live. And the shit began to hit the fan. And immediately on March 23rd, and then again on April 7th, the Fed just stepped in in a way far beyond what they had done in 2008, which shocked everybody because there's all that talk about, is the Fed out of weaponry? Does the Fed have anything left in its quiver? Can the Fed even do anything? Do the Fed have tools to handle this situation? Well, you know, it turns out the Fed can do pretty much whatever it wants. And I think it's proven that over and over again. It just chooses often not to do things that we wish it would do. And it just went into the market and abandoned its balance sheet, which had gone down to about three and a half trillion. Now it's up to like seven trillion and just went crazy buying everything, saying it would underwrite high yield ETFs. People even thought it might uh, start buying equities. And, you know, with the intention of reopening the capital markets, which just absolutely froze to death in March. I mean, there was like, no issuance, no corporate debt issuance, virtually to speak of. And the Fed's actions first got the the high-grade corporate debt market open. And then by the end of March, early April, the high-yield debt opened. And basically since then, Adam, the markets have been just on an absolute tear. Right. I mean, the equity markets are obviously... 30,000, which is kind of mind-blowing, considering in March of 2008, they were down at around 6,500 on the Dow, and then went from 6,500 to about 18,000 by the time of Trump's election, and then went to 29,000 in uh, mid to late February, and then in virtually through March, went back to 17,000. People thought it could go down to 10,000, and now, boom, they're back up to 30,000. And and my favorite chart, which is the high yield chart, the high yield bond index chart, yields on the high yield bond in third week of February were like 5%, which of course were absurd. Two weeks later, they were at 11.5%, which was beginning to make a lot of sense to me and told me that investors were not only freaking out, but beginning to demand the kinds of yields that they were entitled to for the risk they're taking. Now, Adam, if you look at that chart, the yield on a high-yield bond is like 4.75%, 
which is a total round trip, completely absurd. We've gone from this sort of party in the bond market and the equity market that ended abruptly in the third week of February and resumed again in mid-April after the Fed took its actions. So basically six weeks of absolute abject fear in the capital markets to now we're partying again. And it's all driven by the Fed, number one. And then, of course, completely ignores those companies and doesn't do a damn thing to help those companies that can't get access to the capital market, which which are, by the way, something like 99% of companies across this country employing about 50% of the workforce, small and medium-sized enterprises that cannot access the capital markets, the banks don't want to have anything to do with, and they're suffering. So we've created in the space of nine months since the onset of COVID, people like Elon Musk, whose net worth has gone from 30 billion to like 130 billion, and uh, Jeff Bezos, whose net worth has gone from about 100 billion to 200 billion. So the rich have gotten absolutely richer. Anybody who can access the capital markets has made a fortune either on the investing side or or the corporate side. And those who can't get near the capital markets, uh, either as investors or as borrowers, are suffering mightily. Yeah. And you pointed out that the Fed acted this time much more aggressively than they did in 2008. The other thing that I noticed was Congress, the federal government, in terms of pumping money now, you've written about where that money hasn't gone to money of the people who need it, but they've also pumped trillions into the economy in, in fairly short order. I mean, it's things that were far. I mean, you remember, I know because you report on it, but you remember the struggle we had over the TARP money. This dwarfed it, and it really wasn't that much of a fight. We haven't seen it until we got to the summer. You didn't really see much of a fight. Give us a sense of the size and the scope of that economic infusion from the federal government and how it's reached, like you said, those people in the 1% as opposed to the people who really need it. There's the two separate rivers of money, if you will. There's what the Fed did, right, which began on March 23rd and was reiterated again on April 7th and drove that crazy chart round trip chart in the high yield market from 5% to 11.5 now to 4.75. And that basically opened the capital markets. So you had companies like Carnival Cruise, which obviously were suffering extensively because cruise ships were seen as super spreader uh, location. And so they were near bankruptcy, but basically they were able to be bailed out by the high yield market, although they had to pay like 12% yield on those bonds. People like the parent company of of Taco Bell and Pizza Hut, fast food restaurants were hurt initially, and they were able to finance. So Boeing was able to finance $25 billion of financing at the same time that they were lopping off 10% of their workforce. So companies, big companies could access the capital markets the bank markets, the leverage loan markets, and the Fed, that's all to the Fed. Then separately, of course, you had the CARES Act, which was $2 trillion of stimulus from Congress, having nothing to do with the Fed, 
that would pay to people and extending unemployment benefits and supplementing unemployment benefits. And of course, the PPP program, payroll protection program, all of that $2 trillion, which dwarfs obviously the TARP, which was $700 billion. And, and Hank Paulson had to get down on one knee and beg Nancy Pelosi to bail out, which originally was going to be similar to what the Fed has done with quantitative easing, was going to be buying mortgage securities in the market, but that quickly got abandoned and then became equity investments into bank holding companies. And that was, of course, a huge fight. That's also an incredibly successful program because it got uh, confidence restored in the banks. Banks repaid those loans, not only with interest, but the Treasury took warrants and those warrants were paid off uh, at a big premium. So that program worked out very well, although Americans hated it, although I never understood really why. This time, we've got $2 trillion in the CARES Act, which was, I think, very, very important for people. And then, of course, Mitch McConnell decided that was it. And we're still fighting over it now as to whether 918, whatever the current number is, billion-dollar program can be uh, passed before this lame duck Congress goes out of session. And one of the things I also noticed in your reporting was even as far back as early March, the people you were talking to were worried about the possibility, given the economic situation, of civil unrest. And then, of course, obviously in in late May, early June, we had the murder of George Floyd and the rise of Black Lives Matter in a way that we really hadn't seen before. You did a really interesting story back in June about a guy named Raymond McGuire, who spoke at the Economic Club of New York. First of all, tell us who he is and uh, a little bit about what he told them. Ray is an M&A banker that I had worked with at Merrill Lynch during my two years in the M&A group at Merrill, back when the M&A group at Merrill was hot stuff. And Ray was one of the reasons why he had worked at First Boston, Wasserstein Perella, Merrill, Morgan Stanley, and then has spent like the last 13 years at, at Citigroup. Basically, he's one of the most senior, longest serving black M&A bankers on Wall Street and just retired from Citigroup as a vice chairman to, of course, now he's running for mayor of New York. I've known Ray a long time, admired him, and when I saw he was speaking at the Economic Club of New York, my antenna went up, and to me this signaled that Ray was thinking of running for mayor, which he was asked about by Mrs. Kravis at the over Zoom, and he, you know, he evaded the answer, but I knew just looking at him and listening to him that of course he was going to. And so that's why I was tuned up for that interview. And that's why I reported on it, which by the way, nobody else did, which I thought was amusing to me. Yeah, no, it was the only place I saw that. And I have to say, you used some quotes from his speech. In addition to perhaps being the first person to quote Biggie Smalls in that esteemed setting, he said the following, he said, uh, are we going to do something to change the fundamental course of history. Each of us has to challenge ourselves. For some, we'll check the box and that will be okay. The issue will have moved past this moment. 
it shouldn't be just another funeral. It shouldn't be just another ceremony. Each of us has the opportunity to change the course of history. As somebody who knows people like Ray and follows the goings on in Wall Street, have they done enough? Has Black Lives Matter changed things fundamentally in that setting, do you think? In Wall Street? Yes. The answer is, of course not. The answer is that Wall Street is doing better than it has done in the past. But of course, it's not, it's not good enough. Goldman Sachs has said they want to make 50% of the incoming junior analyst class women or minorities. And that's very nice that they say that. I've written stories about Wall Street's minority hiring. And Goldman, of course, makes a big deal about it, splashes it on their website and gives you statistics. My old firm, Lazard, Vernon Jordan works there, and Bill Lewis uh, works there, two very senior black bankers, but very few women, very few other uh, black or minority bankers. And when I wrote that story, I got just uh, vicious calls from the general counsel of Lazard, who just who I knew, who used to who I used to work with, who basically hung up on me uh, because he thought I was kind of misrepresenting Lazard's commitment to a BIPOC hiring, and they they frankly just don't have it. Uh, they give lip service to it, but they don't have it. Other firms are of course better, but a lot of firms just don't get it and are giving lip service to it. Do you think there's this is going to be an issue with investors and clients of these, and particularly the public pension funds and others, going forward, they're going to force these changes? Or again, do you think this is something that Wall Street's going to be able to pretend they have a commitment to and keep it the old white boys club as they normally do? Look, I think over time, it'll improve, but it's still a white, you know, as, as chapter 14 in my Lazard book, titled It's a White Man's World. I think it's still a white man's world. In the fall, I wrote a piece about a new Black-owned bank in Atlanta with Andrew Young being a part of and his son being a part of and Killer Mike, who's a rap star who I met and talked to and you know was fascinated by. He owns a string of barbershops which is, of course, often a center of Black culture in Atlanta. And uh, so that was fascinating. But literally on the same day that I was talking to Killer Mike, uh, Charlie Scharf out at uh, Wells Fargo, the new CEO of Wells Fargo, uh, who, had, of course, worked at J.P. Morgan and with Jamie Dimon for a long time, really put his foot in his mouth when he said, essentially, we'd like to hire more Black bankers, but there just isn't a pipeline for them. To ask Killer Mike about that, he said, well, hi, Charlie, here's what you need to do is right now, Wells Fargo needs to sponsor a kindergarten class and some other classes and just sponsor their education to make sure that your pipeline that you think isn't there is there so that you can hire these people. I mean, it was just an obscene comment, which of course he subsequently had to apologize for. But I mean, I think, you know, there you have it. People give on Wall Street, give lip service to, to this, but the numbers just don't bear it out. 
No, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about politics. Over the summer, you wrote about Wall Street and their feelings toward Trump. And go again, looking back on it this week, it was prescient. You said the consensus on Wall Street seems to be that a Biden presidency will mean an overhaul of the Trump 2018 tax law. That means higher tax rates for the very wealthy, for corporations, likely an increase in the tax rate to 28% from 21 on capital gains. But then you... Um, You say, but the majority of people I talk to on Wall Street think it's worth it taking the hit to get Trump out of office. They view him as an existential threat. You went on to say that they were less enthusiastic and less optimistic about the Democrats retaking the Senate. And again, given where we are, talk a little bit about what you saw then and what in the five, six months uh, since then has, has, is Wall Street still in the same place? Are they happy that Trump is, appears to be gone and that there is gridlock? Well, we don't know quite yet if there's gridlock. And based on the stupidity of the Republican Party week after week here, and what occurred in Georgia in the 2020 election, I wouldn't be surprised if Democrats win both of those. But uh, I will say that there's no question Wall Street is thrilled Trump is gone, as frankly, I would have to say most of the country is thrilled. At least 7 million more people are thrilled than aren't thrilled. (laughs) So Wall Street is very much thrilled by, you know, of course, I mean, that's 80%. I mean, 20% are not thrilled, but but 80% are thrilled that he's gone. He's just too disruptive. He was just too high beta. The tax cut for corporations was an overreach by far. It's added to not only the national debt, which is now up at like $27 trillion, but also to the budget deficits, which are now at $4 trillion. Which is staggering to me. It really is. Staggering. And, you know, all of a sudden, Republicans don't care about debt or deficits now as soon as we have the Biden presidency. And guess what? Fiscal responsibility is now going to be the byword of, of the Republican Party. They're, they're just such hypocrites. And it's so unbelievably disgusting, their behavior. And the Trump tax cut was just so cynical, combining it with the limitations on state and local tax deductions in states that didn't vote for him. I mean, he just really polarized the country beyond the pale. I just think Wall Street was sick of him. And if the price of getting rid of him means that personal tax rates have to go up or corporate tax rates have to go up or the capital gains tax rate goes up to begin to address our fiscal and national debt issues. I think Wall Street is on board for that. And just getting rid of this incredibly divisive, lying, tweeting a-hole who just (laughs) was destroying our country. And Wall Street was of the view like, hey, I can't bear another four years of this. It's just not healthy. Even I think the people who voted for Trump, many of them who on Wall Street anyway, who I talked to who voted for him, don't like him. Right. And are glad that he's gone. And obviously, the Senate remains in Republican hands, then that will provide a check that they would, by and large, be happy with. And you talked about the Trump tax policies and the Republican Party, and they, which brings me to one of my favorite articles you wrote this year was about David Stockman. And before we get into that, explain to our listeners who might not be as old as you and I who David Stockman is and why we should listen to him. So David Stockman is one of the more interesting people 
uh, I've come to know. He was Ronald Reagan's first budget director of the OMB. He was a former congressman when he was plucked by Reagan of Wunderkind, relatively unknown two-term congressman. And Reagan plucked him to uh, be his director of the OMB. And Reagan omics basically was all about sort of trickle down economics, give tax cuts to the rich, and it'll all trickle down. And of course, David Stockman implemented that and then began to realize that it wasn't working, that trickle down economics doesn't ever work. And he became an apostate. And there was that famous William Grider article, The Education of David Stockman in the Atlantic, and he has since become one of the more outspoken thinkers and writers against the Fed's actions, expanding the Fed's balance sheet, the manipulation of interest rates, the hyping up of the stock market, uh, the fiscal irresponsibility when it comes to budget deficits and our national debt. And so I just love somebody who's smart and has the guts to realign his thinking uh, based on new data and new information. You mentioned in your piece that Stockman had been a divinity student at Harvard. And you probably know this, but most people don't. When he was studying there, he had a job, which was he was the babysitter for Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Liz Moynihan's children while Moynihan shuffled off to be a senior advisor to Nixon at the time between Cambridge and Washington. And years later, when he became budget director, and as he said, he was a two-term congressman from Michigan and was plucked by Reagan, the first gridiron dinner of the Reagan era, which actually happened two nights before Reagan was shot, so nobody remembers, but Moynihan gave one of the roasts of Stockman, and the whole premise of his speech was that Stockman was a mole that the Democrats had inserted into the Republican Party to destroy it with this fiscal policy from within, and he said, David was everything one could ask for in a mole, corn-fed, cow-licked, the best boob bait for conservatives ever to come out of the Midwest. He came to Harvard touting the praises of Ho Chi Minh and then left touting the immutability of the Laffer curve. But I was fortunate in, in my youth to get to know him too. And as you, as you said, he is somebody who was part of this and then has become this great critic of that. And one of the things that you had him saying in the discussion you had with him is he blames the Trump GOP for the crash he sees coming. And he says, today's madcap spending, borrowing, printing, Wall Street gambling will bring down the House. And it will happen because the so-called conservative party betrayed every principle and all common sense. And so if George W. Bush's pseudo-conservative economic policies, I mean, you can't necessarily say that Medicare Part D was a traditional conservative Republican type of thing, helped to create the Tea Party. What do you think, and after talking to Stockman and writing about him, what do you think that the reaction will be among true fiscal conservatives or people who care about these things to Trump's policies in the coming years? Well, of course, when what Trump hath wrought comes asunder, when the markets tank, as they obviously will, because the high yield bond at four and three quarters percent 
as I like to say, the bond market is uninvestable. You cannot invest in the bond market now because people have just totally mispriced risk and they therefore have driven up the price of stocks because bond market is uninvestable. So where else do you put your money? That's why we see Dow 30,000. And so it's inevitable that what happened in March of this year until early April, where the stock market collapsed, where the bond market collapsed, that is inevitably going to happen again. Maybe it'll be a different catalyst this time because history doesn't repeat in that way. It only rhymes, as they say. So when that happens, obviously Biden will be president and the Republicans will blame Biden and his policies. They'll try to absolve Trump, who is clearly the architect of this, and Trump's Fed, because, you know, as I pointed out in a a New York Times op-ed beginning August of 2019, that the Fed chairman was in the process throughout 2018 of trying to back off the quantitative easing program and raised interest rates and was trying to normalize the supply and demand in the bond market and to remove the Fed from bigfooting the bond market. And then in February of 2019, Trump decided that he had had enough of what Jerome Powell was doing, raising interest rates, and he called him to the White House for a dinner in February of 2019. And the contents of that dinner and what happened at that dinner have never been reported on and never been revealed. But all we know is that after that, Powell pivoted in high gear and immediately reversed course and started lowering interest rates again, and then went supersonic in March and April of this year. So now we have a zero interest rate policies again and for the foreseeable future. And he said, look, there's no chance I'm raising interest rates anytime soon. And obviously Trump was part of the way he validates himself is the way the market is trading, knew that he needed the market to reverse course and start hitting all-time highs again for him to have a chance of being reelected. It obviously didn't work, but that was part of the plan. And so when it all comes crashing down again, as it inevitably will, Trump will be gone and Biden will get the blame and suddenly we'll have all this Republican piety about fiscal responsibility and deficits, which of course went out the window for four years during the Trump presidency. You've been very generous with your time, Bill. I have one final question. You've written both extensively about Steve Mnuchin and Janet Yellen in the past. Just give us uh, the broad strokes of what. Uh, how does a Secretary Yellen differ from a Secretary Mnuchin? I never understood a Secretary Mnuchin. He never had any qualifications for the job, aside from being a Trump loyalist early on. So he didn't have stature, he didn't have experience. All he has was loyalty to, uh, he was a speculator, hedge fund guy. And so he just carried out, I think he was good at carrying out the president's economic agenda, whether that meant getting the tax cut through. Although talk talked to Gary Cohn and Gary Cohn 
says that he had to babysit Mnuchin and Mnuchin didn't do anything and Gary Cohn did it all, which I can believe. And obviously Mnuchin is the only one who can seem to get along in that administration with Donald Trump. So he was able to broker the CARES Act and maybe in fact break brokering CARES Act number two before they go out of business. So to that extent, I think he's been somewhat successful. Other than that, he's basically been an embarrassment. On a scale of Trump being the biggest embarrassment of all, Mnuchin seems mild in terms of his embarrassment. Yellen, obviously, again, I'm not really sure what qualifies her to be Treasury Secretary, because other than having been at the Fed, and the last person to do that was G. William Miller, obviously, she's the first woman head of the Treasury, that's like a big moment. You know, no one really objected to her when she was at the Fed. She's an economist. She's a labor economist. You know, she's never worked on Wall Street. I guess that is high qualification now to be Treasury Secretary because you don't want to piss off Elizabeth Warren and, right. and AOC and Bernie. It was a brilliant pick politically, I think, from Biden. You know, I guess when the inevitable market crash comes, having had the experience post-2008, she will be able to, I think, deal with that. I mean, I think it's really politically quite a brilliant move, but I'm not sure how a labor economist is the right person to be treasury secretary. And I know you didn't ask me about this, but before we go, I I just want to remind you of one column that I, I did or one piece that I wrote on February 13th of this year about a guy named Mark Spitznagel founder of Universa Investments, a hedge fund that basically helped people think through what was going to happen when the market crashed. And and I started it this way. Talk about history repeating. This was just in February. And now in December, we've come full cycle and we're right back to where we were in February. I, I wrote, what do you do when the bond market is basically uninvestable and the stock market keeps hitting all-time highs and you know in your gut that none of this will end well. What do investors, big and small, do in such unfortunate circumstances like the ones we collectively find ourselves in now? And I wrote, I've been racking my brain for years to figure that out. Increasingly desperate, and with the end getting near, I called Mark Spitznagel, the founder of University Investments, a hedge fund that exists to help investors grapple with the inevitable market crash. Spitznagel, of course, made a fortune uh, like Bill Ackman did in March and April. And at that time, I said to Mark, this was in mid-February, so this was six weeks before the shit really hit the fan. I said, how do little investors, people who aren't uh, institutional investors, people who aren't hedge fund investors, how do we, little investors, deal with the situation that I just described where you know the end is near? And yet there's nothing we can do. We can't buy credit default swaps. We can't make these big hedged bets against the market. What do we do? And he didn't have an answer for me, as I pointed out (laughs) in that piece. And so we suffer while big institutional investors are able to put on these hedges that the rest of us can't do. And so they're, they're able to make money in good times and bad times. And we're right back there again. As I think as you quoted in one of your one of your pieces, as, as Rachel Maddow is often uh, fond of saying, watch this space. So thank you so much, Bill. If people want to know what's going on in the world, or more importantly, what may happen in the world, 
read William D. Cohen in Vanity Fair or the many other places where his writings, you will be happy that you did. Bill, thanks again for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. 